You are listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Loop Podcast. I'm Dr. Morgan Martin. Here with me is Dr. Brian Basiri Tirani. Today's episode, Lower Extremity Reconstruction, is part of our in service review series. Keep in mind, every single thing that we cover today has been a question in the past five years, so we may leave things out. That's why we've been stating this is not comprehensive, but if we leave it out, it has not been addressed at all in five years. We will emphasize things that we feel are important points. So happy listening. Let's get started. Thank you, Morgan. And if you want to see illustrations with our podcast, you can watch us on our YouTube channel, and that'll be very helpful for illustrations and anatomy, especially when we start talking about flaps and pedicles and blood supply to the lower extremity. We also want to thank our listeners for helping popularize this podcast, and we want to continue sharing this as a means to help educate and promote diversity in our field. After the in-service, we're going to bring some fun episodes and some roundtable discussions, so stay tuned for that. Images for this video are provided by our friends at KenHub. If you want to learn more about anatomy, histology, or medical imaging, go and check out their website at www.kenhub.com. There's also a link provided on the description note below. This is a long episode, so let's get to it. Let's fire it up. Let's get started with vascular anatomy of the leg and foot. The arteries that supply the foot include the anterior tibial artery, which supplies the foot and continues down to the dorsalis pedis artery. This supplies the dorsum of the foot. The dorsalis pedis artery then branches to form the arcuate artery to give off dorsal arteries of the foot. This includes the first dorsal metatarsal artery. This turns 90 degrees into the web space and supplies the hallus and the medial second toe. The dorsalis pedis artery can be found between the tendon of the tibialis anterior and the extensor hallucis longus tendon. Next is the peroneal artery, which supplies the anterior lateral aspect of the ankle and foot. It has an anterior perforating branch and a lateral calcaneal branch, which is its terminal branch. Next is the posterior tibial artery, which supplies the plantar surface of the foot. It branches into the lateral plantar artery, which supplies the lateral plantar surface. It becomes the deep plantar arch, which gives rise to the plantar metatarsal arteries, which anastomose directly in the first web space with the dorsalis pedis artery. The other important branch of the posterior tibialis artery is the medial plantar artery, which supplies the instep. This is clinically relevant when considering a medial plantar flap, so this can show up on the in-service. So again, the blood supply comes from the posterior tibial artery for the medial plantar flap. For venous drainage, the great saphenous vein distally is located between the medial malleolus and the tibialis anterior tendon. Cool. Let's talk about vascular injuries now. Bringing us back to our vascular and gen surge days, the hard signs of vascular injury. This includes pulsatile bleeding, absent distal pulses, limb ischemia, expanding hematoma, shock with bleeding, and finally, bruit or thrill at the site of injury. Next, let's talk about ABIs. So ABI, which stands for ankle brachial index. This is the ratio between the ankle and the arm blood pressure. A normal ABI is between 0.9 and 1. Less than 0.9 defines peripheral arterial disease. 0.5 to 0.79 yields wound healing issues for the patient. And less than 0.5 defines critical limb ischemia. Now, patients will usually have rest pain. They may not if they have diabetes, but most patients will have rest pain and they will need revascularization. And they will not be able to heal any wound with this low amount of flow. 
ABIs can be falsely elevated with diabetes mellitus due to calcified stiff vessels that cannot compress whenever the blood pressure cuff is trying to read the pressure in the extremity. So if you're unable to obtain ABIs, you can do a toe brachial index or TBIs and a toe brachial index of greater than 0.7 is normal. Another way to look at it is toe pressures need to be at least 30 millimeters of mercury and severe ischemia is between 0 and 30 and there is a severe lack of healing in this circumstance. Okay. In terms of the in-service, if you get a question about vascular trauma or an arterial injury needing revascularization, there's a couple of things to consider. So if the injury to the vessel is greater than five centimeters, you will definitely need an interposition graft. Make sure to use vein when contaminated as you don't want to put a prosthetic material into that field. Now let's talk about trauma and the Gastillo classification. We will have a table on our YouTube channel if you can access this in order to visualize this in better detail. So Gastillo 1, so this is a clean wound bed. There will be a simple, minimal, or non-comminuted bone fracture, and the wound is less than one centimeter. Gastillo 2, so this has a contaminated wound has moderate comminution of the fracture, a wound that is between 1 and 10 centimeters, and there's no extensive soft tissue damage, flaps, or avulsions. So for both Castillo 1 and 2, cefazolin administration between 24 and 72 hours with initiation as soon as possible after injury is indicated. So moving on to Castillo 3, so a 3A, the wound is highly contaminated, there is severe comminution of the bone, and the wound is between 1 and 10 centimeters. There is extensive soft tissue injury, but there is adequate tissue for coverage. Moving on to 3B, again, the wound is highly contaminated. There is severe comminution of the bone. There is periosteal stripping and exposure of the bone, and there is extensive soft tissue injury greater than 10 centimeters, which will need soft tissue coverage. So there is, again, severe comminution of the fracture, and this is from a high-velocity trauma. And these distal third injuries will need free flap coverage as the gold standard. 3C, this is any injury with major vascular injury requiring repair for limb salvage. So an absolute indication for amputation is a warm ischemia time of greater than six hours. Right. And there are other relative indications for amputation and that includes avulsion of the tibial nerve. If the nerve is cut, this was previously an indication for amputation, but nowadays we consider limb salvage with repair of the nerve and flap coverage. Since we found that 50% of patients will regain plantar sensation in two years, this was a recent question, and the answer was actually limb salvage. Another relative indication for amputation is if the nerve defect is greater than 12 centimeters. We don't typically attempt salvage as there will be no recovery, and by the time the recovery does happen, the muscles will be fibrotic and non-functional anyway. Other relative indications for amputation include massive burns with significant open wounds, or patients who are just simply non-compliant with basic care. Since the degree of contamination determines the risk of infection, you must add aminoglycoside to the first-generation cephalosporin for Gustillo 3 patients. Let's talk about reconstruction timing. There is a paper from PRS called Timing of Microsurgical Reconstruction in Lower Extremity Trauma. This was published in 2019, and this is an update from the Godina paradigm of 72 hours. This established that it is acceptable to delay reconstruction up to 10 days post-injury with similar outcomes. The wound needs to be clean and optimally 
there would be definitive fixation immediately prior to soft tissue coverage. Keep in mind, a common cause of free flap failure is inadequate debridement leading to infection. So if the wound is heavily contaminated, do not flap before adequate debridement. After 8 to 10 weeks, the patient can undergo bone grafting if needed. If you are using a large allogenic graft, you can add a free fibula flap for vascularized bone to decrease union time. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more in the free fibula section. Returning to the concepts of reconstruction timing. So if there is late exposed hardware with infection, you must remove the hardware. After you remove the hardware, if there is bony union, you can proceed straight to flap for soft tissue coverage. If there is no bony union, the patient needs an X-fix, then a flap for soft tissue coverage. If there is no infection of the hardware, you can proceed straight to flap for soft tissue coverage without removal of the hardware. Let's move on to compartment syndrome after trauma. We all know this as the five P's, paresthesia and poikilothermia, and then followed by pallor, paralysis, and pulselessness. As we all know, pulselessness is a very late sign. It's typically the last sign. And oftentimes on the test, they'll give you a patient that has compartment syndrome, but they'll indicate that the patient has a pulse, and that's just to throw you off. Clinically, if you have no pulse, that's not good because it's, like I said, the last thing to show and pretty much late to the party at that point. This can happen or compartment syndrome can happen following a substantial soft tissue crush injury or even in the absence of a fracture. Severe pain is usually the presenting complaint, particularly Passive range of motion is extremely painful for these patients. It may be out of proportion to the injury and unresponsive to pain meds. It is a clinical diagnosis, so you can use compartment pressures to aid in your diagnosis, but if there's any question, you're going to go ahead and do the fasciotomy. In terms of compartment pressures, 30 millimeters of mercury or a differential pressure, which is the systolic blood pressure minus the compartment pressure of less than 30 is an indication. On test, if you have a patient that has compartment syndrome, the answer is always fasciotomy. So prompt surgical release of the compartments because the muscles and nerves cannot tolerate the ischemia. And in the lower leg, we have four compartments. You have the lateral, anterior, deep posterior, and the posterior compartments. That's a good thing to review before the test in terms of which muscles and blood supply is in which compartments because they may ask a question about that. Let's talk about lower extremity flaps. Before we get into the name flaps, keep in mind it is very common to obtain CTA of the lower extremity for surgical planning. Contrast-induced nephropathy is a complication. A major risk factor for developing contrast-induced nephropathy is pre-existing renal dysfunction. And the best way to prevent contrast-induced nephropathy is, number one, risk stratification and IV hydration with normal saline. You can also withhold nephrotoxic drugs. Yeah, that's always seems to come up on tests. And I've noticed that both on AppSite and uh, in-service, they'll always put in N-acetylcysteine, put in as an answer choice for prevention of contrast-induced nephropathy, but that's not the answer. It's going to be prehydration of saline. I think once it was thought that NAC was a free radical, well, it is a free radical scavenger, but it was thought that it could help with contrast nephropathy, but studies have shown that head-to-head hydration is superior, so that's it's not the answer. It's always going to be hydration. Okay, now let's go on to thigh flaps. We can use thigh flaps as a pedicle for regional reconstruction, or we can use it for distal defects. So let's start with the gracilis flap. This is a Mathis and the high type 2 flap, meaning it has a major and minor pedicle. The major pedicle is the ascending branch of the medial circumflex, comes from the femoral artery, and the minor pedicle is the perforating branches from the superficial femoral artery. 
The origin of the muscle is the symphysis pubis, and it inserts into the medial tibia below the condyle at the pes anserinus. Obturator nerve is used for functional transfer, such as for facial reanimation. Next is vastus lateralis. The pedicle is the lateral femoral circumflex. And if you harvest this as a fasciocutaneous flap, remember this is the ALT. However, you can harvest this as a muscle flap, which is the vastus lateralis, and it has the same pedicle. The nerve is the motor branch, the vastus lateralis, from the femoral nerve. Next is the tensor fasciae lata, or the TFL flap. This muscle has only one major pedicle, making it a type 1 flap. The pedicle is the transverse or ascending branch of the lateral femoral circumflex. The origin is the iliac crest, or the anterior superior iliac spine, or ACES. It lies between two layers of the IT bands to lateral tibial condyle as its insertion, and it is superficial to the vastus lateral. Next is sartorius, so keep in mind we use this very commonly pedicled in the groin to cover any critical structures such as the femoral artery after maybe a vascular surgery with exposed vessels. So the sartorius, its blood supply is segmental, or in other words, a Nahai type 4. And this comes from the superficial femoral artery and enters the muscle on the underside. It also has a minor pedicle, including branches from the superficial circumflex, deep femoral, and descending geniculate arteries. The origin of the muscle is the ASIS, and it inserts at the pes and serinus at the proximal tibia. Next is the rectus femoris flap. The pedicle is the descending lateral femoral circumflex. The origin is the ASIS or the acetabulum with its insertion at the base of the patella. The disadvantage is that you can lose terminal knee extension when using this as a uh, flap. Next is the anterior medial thigh flap. So this pedicle is a lateral femoral circumflex, just like the ALT, but it is based off perforators to the rectus femoris. Now moving on to distal lower extremity coverage. So rule of thirds, we always divide into upper, middle, and lower thirds. So let's start with the upper third. For upper third defects, we typically use the medial gastroc. The origin is the medial condyle of the femur. It's used to cover most of the proximal one-third leg wounds. The artery supply is the medial sural artery from the popliteal artery, and the nerve supply is the saphenous nerve. The lateral gastroc is a smaller muscle and has less reach when compared to the medial head of the gastrocnemius. There is risk of injury to the common peroneal nerve with the harvest of the lateral gastroc. Usually, the medial gastroc is used for the proximal third because of its increase in reach. Post-op, there is still 75% retention of plantar flexion, even when taking both heads of the gastroc, so both medial and lateral. So it's very well tolerated by patients. Next, the reverse ALT is a fasciocutaneous option to cover the knee and proximal third of the lower leg. So you can think of this when maybe the gastroc muscle is not available for use because the patient has a BKA. You can use a reverse ALT as a good fasciocutaneous option to cover the knee. Next is the saphenous artery perforator propeller flap. So this is a fasciocutaneous flap from the medial knee. The pedicle is the saphenous artery from the descending genicular artery, and the nerve is the medial femoral cutaneous. It can be proximally or distally based. And just as I said before with the reverse ARLT, it can be used for BKA stump defects. Let's move on to the middle thirds now. For middle third defects, you're going to consider the soleus. The lateral portion of the soleus originates from the upper one third of the fibula, and the medial portion of the soleus originates from the medial tibia. The insertion is the Achilles tendon. The pedicle, when it's considered from the proximal base, can come from two different places. Laterally, it's from the peroneal artery, and medially, it's from the posterior tibial artery. So keystone flaps can also be used for this region. 
These are bilateral proximal and distal V-to-Y advancements with island flap transfer. Now let's talk about distal third defects. The gold standard is to do free tissue transfer. However, you can also think about using a propeller flap. For lateral defects, this would use perforators from the peroneal artery. These perforators often arise through the posterior peroneal septum. And for medial defects, the perforators are from the posterior tibial artery. Distally based soleus flaps is only coming from one place and that's the posterior tibial artery. There are some other flaps to know about. The tibialis anterior is a good muscle to know you can use. The pedicle is from the perforators of the anterior tibial artery, so this makes it a type 4 or segmental blood supply. This muscle is the primary dorsiflexor, so you can only use part of it. It's useful for anterior tibial defects that are 6 to 8 centimeters. The medial sural artery perforator flap, so this is based on the medial sural artery. It is a thin fasciocutaneous flap and can be used free or pedicled. Now, Brian, tell us about the reverse version of this flap. Next is the reverse sural flap, which is a distally based flap. The pedicle includes perforators of the medial sural artery from the peroneal artery, and it's about 5 centimeters proximal to the lateral malleolus. The venous drainage includes the small or lesser saphenous vein. This is useful for medial ankle wounds and the heel right around the Achilles tendon. This follows the line of the lateral malleolus to the medial area of gastroc, including the sural nerve. The most common complication is partial flap loss, and it's commonly secondary to venous insufficiency. You could consider delaying the flap by dividing the lesser saphenous vein proximally. So if a patient is a smoker or has diabetes or other risk factors, that might be a consideration. There has been a previous question when they asked what are contraindications, and there's really only one absolute contraindication, and it's occlusion of the peroneal artery because that means you wouldn't have any inline flow to this flap. Another thing to consider is that if the patient has venous insufficiency or peripheral artery disease, in addition to other factors like smoking and diabetes, that's going to portend a poor prognosis for the flap. Now let's talk about the free fibula flap. So the pedicle is the peroneal artery. You can use color flow Doppler preoperatively for evaluation of this flap and the perforators. It is commonly used for mandibular or maxillary defects. And let's talk a little bit in more detail about how this flap can be used to assist with lower extremity reconstruction. The fibula as a vascularized bone flap can be used to reconstruct segmental defects of the femur or tibia. You should use the contralateral fibula for the donor side. There is the issue of weight bearing of the fibula alone, so if the defect is small enough, you can use it as a double barrel technique. For larger defects, you can use the fibula inside a large bone allograft to strengthen the repair. And so this is called the Capana technique. And usually there's a question on this every single year. So let me repeat. So for large defects, you can use the fibula inside of a large bone allograft to strengthen the repair. And that's the Capana technique. A couple technical points to make, the flexor hallucis longus, which is responsible for flexion of the great toe IP joint, is located in the deep posterior compartment. This muscle may be harvested with elevation of the free fibula flap, and so there is a complication called claw toe since patients can get a claw-like deformity. Also, there can be injury to the peroneal nerve if a large fibula flap is taken for larger defect. So usually you want to preserve the proximal 4 to 8 centimeters to keep stability of this joint, but also to avoid the peroneal nerve. Injury would cause foot drop as the deep peroneal nerve innervates the anterior compartment. So this could be a very likely scenario and it's frequently asked. Great. Now let's talk about foot flaps. The lateral supramalleolar flap is a good flap to cover defects at the lateral malleolus and anterior ankle. 
is usually distally based and the perforator is from the peroneal artery and it's five centimeters above the lateral malleolus. Next is the medial plantar artery flap. This is also called the instep flap. It is the most reliable sensate flap for coverage of plantar calcaneus. This is always a question. This is the go-to option for sensate coverage of the heel. The pedicle is the medial plantar artery, and it is the terminal branch of the posterior tibial. It is found between the abductor hallucis and the flexor digitorum brevis. They love asking these anatomy questions about where the pedicle is, so try to memorize this. Innervation for this flap is from the medial plantar nerve, which is a terminal branch of the tibial nerve. And this nerve runs between the flexor digitorum brevis and the flexor hallucis brevis. Again, it is classic regional flap to cover the calcaneus. All right. And the lateral plantar artery flap is useful for lateral defects. The pedicle is between the flexor digitoris brevis and adductor digiti minimi. The dorsalis pedis flap, so the artery is the dorsalis pedis between the tibialis anterior tendon and the extensor hallucis longus tendon. The nerve is the superficial peroneal, and it is used for anterior ankle wounds and dorsal distal foot wounds. Next is the great toe flap. This is used in toe to thumb transfers. The artery is the first dorsal metatarsal artery from communicating branches between the dorsalis pedis and plantar arteries. Now a quick word about tendon grafts. The plantaris tendon can be harvested for use as a tendon graft. It extends from the medial malleolus and therefore to harvest this, you should make an incision on the medial aspect of the Achilles. Keep in mind the tibial nerve is at risk with harvest. All right, now moving on to nerves. We'll cover the anatomy, injuries, and how to treat injuries. Let's start off talking about the fundamentals of nerve repair. This includes coaption in a tension-free manner. If there is tension, nerve grafts or conduits are indicated. Use a conduit if less than three centimeters. So for example, you could use polyglycolic acid nerve tubes and processed human allograft conduits. These serve as scaffolds to promote nerve regeneration. If you don't have this at your disposal, you could alternatively use vein grafts as a scaffold. If longer than three centimeters, you must use a nerve graft. Common choices are the sural, lateral, or medial antibrachial cutaneous. If the defect is greater than 12 centimeters, you cannot expect to have a functional recovery, so it would be futile to repair, and if we are talking about major traumatic injury, as we said earlier, would be an indication for amputation. Let's talk about the common peroneal nerve. This can be found laterally as it encircles around the fibular head and quickly branches into the deep and superficial branches. It comes from the lateral division of the sciatic nerve and wraps around the biceps femoris tendon. It is associated with knee dislocations, proximal tibial fractures, and supracondylofemoral fractures. This is very important and is always tested. So again, injury from knee dislocations, proximal tibial fractures, and femur fractures. This will cause peroneal nerve injury and result in foot drop. It is the most commonly injured nerve of the lower extremity because it is so superficial. Again, think of a classic picture of a foot drop for peroneal nerve injuries. Treatment, if it's three months or less, you want to explore, perform a neurolysis and repair if it needs to be done. If it's over six months of the injury, you're still going to explore it surgically. And if it's intact, you'll perform a tibialis posterior to tibialis anterior tendon transfer. The deep peroneal branch, this supplies the anterior compartment with motor innervation to the anterior tibialis, extensor digitorum longus, extensor hallucis longus. It is responsible for dorsiflexion of the foot, and as we said earlier, injury would cause foot drop. It courses with the tibial artery, and it runs between the tibialis anterior 
and extensor hallucis longus. It also supplies the extensor digitorum brevis in the foot. It is found under the extensor retinaculum, so therefore it can get entrapped. With entrapment, this causes pain, weakness, and numbness on the dorsum of the foot. It supplies sensation to the first web space. So that's very important, the first web space. Next is the superficial peroneal branch. This innervates the lateral compartment musculature, which is the peroneus longus and brevis. Therefore, these muscles are responsible for foot eversion. It gives sensation to the skin on the distal third of the lower leg and dorsum of the foot, except the first web space, which is provided by the deep peroneal nerve. I feel like that's always an in-service trick that they always try to fool you on, but the first web space is the deep peroneal and then everything else on the dorsum of the foot and lower leg is the superficial peroneal. Next is the saphenous nerve. At the ankle, it is between the medial malleolus and the anterior tibial tendon and lateral to the great saphenous vein. It is the terminal cutaneous branch of the femoral nerve. It supplies the medial lower leg, the medial knee, and also part of the area of the medial malleolus. It would be very beneficial to actually view this on our YouTube channel because we will be able to show you the diagram associated with this. Next, we'll talk about femoral nerve. It is the motor innervation to the anterior thigh muscles, which includes quadriceps, iliacus, and sartorius. Injuries cause weakness with leg extension. The rectus femoris, for example, is responsible for terminal knee extension. Next, the obturator nerve. This supplies the medial thigh, which is the adductors and the gracilis. Next is the sural nerve. Proximally, it is composed of a medial branch from the tibial nerve and a lateral branch from the common peroneal nerve. These branches join to become the sural nerve distally. It becomes superficial and runs with the small saphenous vein. It is sensory only for the posterior lateral leg and plantar aspect of the foot. It is found between the Achilles tendon and the lateral malleolus. It gives rise to the lateral calcaneal branch to supply the lateral heel skin. And again, this was mentioned earlier, but it's a commonly used nerve for a nerve graft. Next, the tibial nerve. So this is a very important topic and is highly tested. So the tibial nerve is a branch of the sciatic nerve. It travels through the popliteal fossa and branches to the gastroc, soleus, plantaris, and popliteus. It also supplies the deep posterior compartment, which is the flexor digitorum longus, the flexor hallucis longus, and the tibialis posterior. This means it is responsible for plantar flexion of the foot. It is located posterior to the medial malleolus and is associated with the posterior tibial artery. The terminal branches are the medial and lateral plantar nerves and the calcaneal nerve, supplying the deep plantar muscles of the foot and sensation to the plantar surface of the foot. Again, important, it is the sensation to the plantar surface of the foot. So the medial and the lateral plantar nerves go through the tarsal tunnel. And one question you may be asked is a patient with trauma to the lower extremity with soft tissue injury and also has a tibial nerve laceration. As we discussed before, this was previously an indication for amputation as the patient had no plantar sensation. However, newer evidence suggests greater than 50% of patients with tibial nerve repair will regain sensation and therefore now the new answer is to repair and perform free flap if indicated. Also keep in mind, you may be asked about patients who after a lower extremity bypass procedure, which for example, may be from the femoral to the posterior tibial artery, they can have injury to the tibial nerve as it runs closely with the posterior tibial artery. They will have weakness in plantar flexion as again, it innervates the deep posterior compartment. So this is very high yield information. Again, weakness with plantar flexion after bypass is tibial nerve injury. 
Yeah, I feel like they love the tibial nerve. It's like a million questions on that. Which compartment it's in, all the surrounding structures and what it does and all that stuff. So make sure you know that. Okay, uh, let's talk about tarsal tunnel syndrome. The pathophysiology is entrapment of the tibial nerve behind the medial malleolus under the flexor retinaculum, also known as the Licinian ligament. The tibial nerve is in the deep posterior compartment of the leg. Signs and symptoms include numbness and tingling on the plantar surface of toes and sometimes can result in clawing. Now let's move on and talk about lower extremity ulcers. Ulcers should be evaluated with first history. Has there been trauma, previous injury? What is the duration of the ulcer? Physical exams should include evaluation of any swelling, discoloration, pulses, and also ABIs or ankle brachial index. This will differentiate an ulcer from an arterial or a venous problem. Arterial ulcers will appear as well-circumscribed, punched-out lesion. Treatment is to revascularize the extremity. We may be asked this in a scenario in a non-healing wound, such as a pressure ulcer from cast immobilization that may have undiagnosed peripheral arterial disease. This is something we learn on vascular, but all lower extremity wounds need a vascular workup, and it all starts with history, physical, and ABIs. With venous ulcers, you will see hemosiderin, swelling, and dark discoloration. Compression and keeping the wound clean is the initial, primary, and mainstay therapy for healing venous ulcers. Again, compression and keeping the wound clean is the answer. So this includes usage of Unaboot for compression. Another sort of ulcer tested in this section is pyoderma gangrenosum. This is an ulcerative cutaneous condition of unknown etiology, but it's usually associated with other systemic diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, or other immunologic diseases. The first-line therapy for pyoderma is prednisone or steroids. The key is you do not debride these. You can biopsy them to rule out malignancy since it's a chronic ulcer, but surgical manipulation can actually worsen the ulceration, either at the site or have other ulcers pop up elsewhere. So again, steroids for pyoderma do not operate biopsy to rule out cancer, and this is a medical problem treated medically, not surgically. Sarcomas are also briefly mentioned in this section, so the most common soft tissue type is malignant fibrous histiocytoma. The most common bone type is osteogenic sarcoma, most commonly at the metaphysis of the knee. And Ewing sarcoma, classically in the femur diaphysis, it is radiosensitive. Moving on to congenital defects, we'll talk about congenital constriction bands or amniotic band syndrome. The theory of pathogenesis is early amnion rupture with entanglement of fetal parts. It's associated with prematurity, low birth weight, maternal illness, maternal drugs, and hemorrhage. Bands can cause constriction of extremities, preventing distal blood flow, uh, pretty much causing a critical limb ischemia. So as you would expect, this is a true surgical emergency, and the treatment is to release the bands to restore blood flow. Next is clubfoot, also known as congenital Talib's echinovirus. It has four features. Number one, forefoot adduction. Number two, hindfoot varus. Number three, echinus, or inability to dorsiflex, and cavus, very high arch. There is a predilection for male over female, and it is associated with maternal smoking, and there is also a possible genetic link. It can be seen in syndromes such as Stickler syndrome, and the most common treatment is conservative with minimal surgical release. All right, we're almost there. Let's cover DVT because this is also covered under lower extremity. Extensive acute thrombotic occlusion of, say, the femoral vein to the IVC is going to be a major problem. And so clinically, you'll see a swollen red or purple leg. The first-line treatment is catheter-directed thrombolysis. Next would be percutaneous thrombectomy. And then you would go on to open thrombectomy in that order. 
We do not want to give systemic thrombolytics. That's a major risk in terms of bleeding for the whole body that's unnecessary. Anticoagulation is not going to address this acute thrombosis, and it's not going to restore venous flow to the left. Without treatment, this extremity would eventually lead to ischemic complications if you don't treat it. That was a question on the in-service recently, so keep that in mind. Okay, everyone, that was a ton of information and should have covered everything you need to know for the in-service exam. The pedicle locations can be hard to remember but are commonly tested, so try to commit that to memory. And also remember the Gustillo classification, distal third injuries like 3B and C need debridement and then free flap reconstruction within 10 days. And all in all, lower extremity, just like hand, there's a lot of questions they can ask about anatomy and there's just creative ways they can ask it. So just know your anatomy cold and that should be a huge help for you on the in-service. Thanks, Bride, for your help today. For our listeners, if you like this podcast, make sure and spread the word to everyone in your program. We do have a Facebook page. We have a YouTube channel. And we also have a very active Instagram page. The handle is at the Loop Podcast. We are frequently posting updates as well as pop quizzes to our story, which are basically like flashcards. So make sure and follow us to get all of that information to get in the loop. 